up. Uh, we're in verse 43 is where we've got to of John's gospel. And so I just thought this morning we'd read this chunk of the text and then we'll get into it. So chapter 4, verse 43 says this. Jesus in Samaria. After two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his home, own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill, and when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever, fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Great story, eh? Uh, we slipped away this week. You guys know this. I'm sure we were, we were away last Sunday. We thought spring break, let's... Let's, uh, let's get away. We'll go visit some friends on the island. We were actually going to go this weekend, and then just the way things went, it got swapped around. And so um, we left Saturday after uh, George's uh, uh, celebration of life and got up early in the morning, and we thought, let's, you know, let's not deal on spring break. Maybe there's going to be traffic with the ferry. Let's head north. So we decided, let's do the circle route. So we went up to Powell River, and we thought we'd enjoy a bit of a road trip at the same time. So we, we do the circle route, right? Like that's what it's called. Gibson's to Powell River, Powell River to Comox, Island Time, Nanaimo to Horseshoe Bay, Horseshoe Bay to back to Gibson's. And it's like, it's a circle route. You close the circle. You come back to where you started, right? Now, it's interesting that biblical, the Bible functions like that, okay? Biblical literature functions like that. Hebrew, the structure of Hebrew writing works exactly the same. It's different from English literature, English stories. Like in English, when we tell a story or we read a story, it goes like this. There's a beginning and then there's a middle to the story and then you come to the end of the story and it's what happens at the end? Happily ever after. That's what typically happens in an English story, right? But, but Jewish literature, in particular in the Bible, it has a different structure. The, the, the structure of the Bible always works like this, and you'll catch it if you watch for it. it. It goes beginning, middle, and then not the end. It's beginning, middle, and a beginning. There's, there's always new beginnings. And so it's, it's like circling, and then there's a new beginning, and then there's a circle, and there's a new beginning. And the Bible is not so much like this happily ever after story as it is a story of new beginnings as God does things. And John's actually using that pattern in his gospel. And it started in John chapter two. We started in Cana. There was a story about a wedding. And now what have we done? We've done a circle route. We're back at, we're back at Cana. 
And, and remember when we first saw Cana in John chapter 2, Jesus was there with his disciples. Uh, he was with his mother. They were, they were at a wedding, and as the celebration went on, the wine ran out. We know the story. John references it here again. And so because the wine runs out, Jesus' mother tells him about the problem and asks him to do something. And so he instructs the servants of the household to fill six ceremonial water jars. The scripture says that they were, tw they, these aren't little jars, they're 20 to 30 gallons each. And then to take a sample of that water to the host. And, and the miracle was that when the water uh, came out of those jars, it was wine. It was miraculously transformed to wine. And the master of this wedding celebration said, wow, this is amazing. You know, everyone serves the, the best wine first at these celebrations. And then when everybody's had too much to drink, out comes the cheap stuff. And here you save the best for last which we saw speaks of the quality of the things that Jesus does, that Jesus saves the best for last. Think about that one. It's like beginning, middle, beginning. It gets better with Jesus all the time. And, and this sign we saw told us that Jesus is the master over quality. Like what he does is good. He is good. That's his nature. He's always making the best of the best. And John said in that story, he told us this was the first of the signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, which is kind of this crazy thing. And, and I, I, I can't get into it this morning. We don't have time to go back. You can go on to the, onto our website, website, the church website, and listen to that teaching about how that miracle manifested the glory of Jesus, that his disciples saw it and they believed in him, John said. But now we, we've circled back. We've, we've come the full circle route and we're back in, in Cana. From Cana, John took us down to Jerusalem. There was the feast. Jesus cleansed the temple, remember? He drove, drove out the money changers and those who were selling animals and, and, and said, this is my father's house. It's a house to be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. And then John took us back to the, the rivers, the, the waters of the Jordan River where, G, where he told us Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. That more and more people were flocking to Jesus and, and that Jesus actually made a decision to retreat from that area, to move away from that area because pressure was beginning to mount as the Pharisees saw that his ministry and his influence was growing. And so John takes us on the route that Jesus takes. He goes to Samaria and there he meets that woman at the well and... Jesus is invited to stay there in the city of Sychar for, for a couple of days. And then we come back to Canaan. And what we need to know is that this is not by mistake that we're back in Canaan. This is part of the story. It's not by mistake. John takes us back to Canaan because he's closing a bit of a loop in his gospel. He's, he's circled around and he's telling part of the story and he wants us to catch what's going on and what he's telling us about Jesus. It's beginning in Cana, a wedding, whole middle story, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, and now he closes the loop. Middle, beginning, middle, beginning. And John's gospel has this stated purpose. Calvin's gonna put it up on the screen for you. It's John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. John clearly says, this is why he's writing. He says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. 
But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, I want, I'm telling you certain stories so that you'll know that Jesus is the Son of God and so that you'll understand that if you'll put your faith in him, you'll have life in his name. And this Cana circle root just fits that purpose perfectly. It's full of intended meaning. And so in Cana, for the second time, Jesus has a third personal encounter. It was Nicodemus. It was the Samaritan woman, and now we read about this official whose son is ill. And remember, John is taking us into personal encounters. His gospel's different than the other three. We're meeting people, and, and Jesus, we're hearing Jesus' conversation with individuals, not crowds, individuals. And so verse 43 says, after, after the two days he departed for Galilee. It's interesting to me that the number two pops up everywhere in this little text, like two days, second time. It's okay, they're going for the ferry. They warned me, they're not mad at me. <laughs> God bless you guys. <laughs> That's, you appreciate that when someone doesn't sit in the front row and then get up and go for the ferry, right? <laughs> it's pretty safe. Most of the time I'm like, I think they're going for the ferry. I don't think I've offended them, but you know. So it's interesting, the number two pops up in this text a lot. But, we know this, that those two days, that Jesus spent two days in the city of Sychar in Samaria after his encounter with the woman at the well. And she had gone back and gave her testimony. And the people of the community had come out. They invited Jesus to say, they said, stay with us. And so he, he did that. He stayed there for two days. And, and I, I just imagine that it must have been difficult for Jesus to leave Sychar. Like these people were pumped to have him there. Um, when it was time to go, that was tough because Sychar was having revival. There was a spiritual revival happening. A city was turning to faith in Jesus. And so to pack up and to leave and to return to the Galilee where Jesus knew that the reception would not be great must have been tough on one level. Like I think on one level, on a human side of it, that must have been difficult for Jesus to pack up and leave Sychar. But on a deeper level, as we've seen earlier in this chapter, when we were in this chapter earlier, Jesus said this. He said that his food was to do the will of him who had sent him and to accomplish his work. He said, that's what satisfies me, to do the will of my father. That's what, that's what meets my appetite. And so why would he go to Galilee? Like why leave revival in Samaria and go to the Galilee? Where it's going to be tough. Where it's going to be hard. Where it's going to be resistance. Well, I think, you know, you got to zoom out in scripture. You know, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would go to the Galilee. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would make glorious the way of the sea. That's what he said. He said that, that the land beyond the Jordan, the, the Galilee of the nations, that's what Isaiah called it, Galilee of the nations. In fact, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 says this, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. The Galilee was a, was a dark place. It was spiritually dark. Not only was it far from Jerusalem, not only was it far from the nation's kind of epicenter of spirituality and religious life and the epicenter of worship, the temple, the Galilee was uh, overrun by Gentiles. Uh, to the east was the area of the Decapolis that we read about in the gospel. Ten Gentile cities. There were Gentiles everywhere. There was a mix of cultures and peoples in, in the region of the Galilee. And, and so it was a dark place. But Isaiah had prophesied that the Messiah would go to this place and that he would shine there like a great light. And so I think this, you know, Jesus returned to the Galilee because he understood the word of God. Jesus returned to the Galilee because he understood the prophecies in the word of God concerning himself. You know, I don't think that it was like, oh, Jesus did this, and then, oh, wow, what a coincidence. He fulfilled a prophecy. You know, like the disciples figure it out later after he's gone. Oh, wow, what a coincidence. He fulfilled this prophecy. No, it's like, you know, Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus knew the word of God. The prophecies regarding himself, the Messiah, they weren't, they weren't simply predictive. Those prophecies gave Jesus his direction. Those prophecies gave him his directive, his mandate from the Father. How did he know what the, what the Father's will was? Well, he had the spirit of God. We've seen that. That was resting upon him. But he also had the word of God. The prophecies of the Old Testament. And when Jesus read the scriptures, like think about it, when Jesus unfolded the scroll, let's say Isaiah's scroll, and he read from Isaiah's scroll, he not only found predictions regarding his ministry, but he also found in those same scriptures direction for his ministry. Oh, God wants me to go there. God wants me to do this. Jesus knew that the prophecies written about him must be fulfilled by him. See, Jesus was not just a hearer of the word, he's a doer of the word. And that's what we have to be also. That's what the scripture commands us to be. Not simply to be hearers of the word of God, not just to sit here this morning and hear, but to be doers. To be those who apply the word of God. To be those who take their direction, their directives, from the word of God. That's what we're to be. Not simply hearers, but doers of the word. Later in the gospel of John, Jesus is gonna say to his disciples, he'll say, if you know these things, that's fine. That's great, you know them. But blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. See, see knowing the word of God, knowing the word of God is not sufficient, church. We have to be doers of the word of God. Like Jesus, the, the word of God is not just a source of information for us. The word of God is not just an exciting book about prophecies and all this exciting stuff that's yet to be fulfilled. God's word is given to us for direction, to direct our lives, to guide us. And, and Jesus said, you will be blessed if you do the word. That's what he told his disciples. If you do these things, that literally means 
that happiness comes. Like, think about it. It means blessed are you if you do them. That means happiness in your life comes from being obedient, obediently applying the word of God. Looking to it for your direction. You know, I would tell you this. You can correlate your own personal joy with your obedience to the word of God. We live in a culture that's like depressed, right? We know that. It's like, it's like crazy. The depression, anxiety people suffer from. Look, the word of God actually tells us this, that you can correlate your joy with your obedience to the word of God. Jesus said, blessed are you if you do the word. Apply the word of God. In verse 44, it says this, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. You know, I read that and I think, you know, Jesus knew that ministry in Galilee was not going to be easy. But joy doesn't come from ease. So, like, joy doesn't come from a lazy boy putting your feet up, does it? Joy comes from obedience. Joy comes from doing the word. This is, joy is a happiness that transcends circumstance, right? It's a, it's a joy that's sourced in the blessing of God rather than situation or circumstance. And so this joy that, that even Jesus talks about when he says, blessed are you if you do these things, that, that's a joy and a happiness and a blessing that rises beyond the physical realm of life. It's something deep that happens in your heart and in your soul as you apply the word of God. It's a joy that, that like seats you in heaven even though, as Paul talked about in Ephesians, that seats you in heaven even though your feet are touching the earth. Jesus knew this. A prophet has no honor in his own hometown, but Jesus wasn't motivated by receiving men's honor. His food was to do the will of him who sent him. So off he went to Galilee. In verse 45 we read, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now to me that's kind of funny when you read this because John's like just told us that Jesus knew a prophet, has no honor in his own hometown, and, and then you read right in the next sentence, the Galileans welcomed him. And I'm like, okay, what's, what's going on here? Why did they welcome him? And I, I, I don't know, there could be a few things happening there. Like, I, I wish I could explain it. It's a little bit of a mystery to me, but I mean, I, I kind of think, well, f first of all, it doesn't tell us that Jesus stopped in Nazareth. That was his actual hometown. Like, if he's traveling from Samaria to Galilee, the first town he's going to come to, actually, is Nazareth. It, it's, on, it's on the border of, of Galilee. And so... Maybe this has to do with Jesus just passing right by Nazareth and heading to the next town. The next town past Nazareth was Cana. They're walking distance from one another. But maybe more than that, I, I think you have to look at the reasons that John tells us the Galileans came and welcomed Jesus. Why did they welcome him? It wasn't because of his word. It wasn't because of what who he was. No, these people welcomed him because they had seen all that he had done at the feast in Jerusalem. That's what John tells us. They weren't welcoming the prophet for his word. They welcomed Jesus, I think, because they were curious about this miracle worker. 
Not because they received him as savior, not because they had received, or be- received him as Christ or believed that he was Messiah. They weren't interested in who Jesus was. That's what I would actually, that's what I think. They're not interested in who Jesus is. They're interested in what he could do. So verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. Circling back here. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So again, you know, the report of that first miracle in Cana coupled with the rumors that had come back from Jerusalem and those who had been present in Jerusalem kind of established Jesus with this reputation that he was a healer, that he was a, a wonder worker, a man who could perform miracles. And so back in, in, in Cana, as the circle roots complete, Jesus has this interaction with this, this one man, this one individual, an official from Capernaum. Now, Capernaum and Cana are like 25, about 25 kilometers apart. In your mind's eye, you could think the drive from Gibson's to Seashell. Get that in your mind. Gibson's to Seashell, okay? So it's like a journey, like of that distance. Have you got that picture in your mind? Now, imagine this. Imagine being stuck behind someone going 50 kilometers an hour from Gibson's to Seashell. Now, this is important. Listen to me. Don't be that person. Okay. Speed limit's 80. <laughs> Nothing to do with the sermon. I just threw that in for free. Okay. Don't drive 50 on that highway. Okay. No, obviously, this official is not getting in a car and making that 25-kilometer journey from Capernaum to Cana. Maybe, maybe he's on foot. Maybe he's got a horse. Maybe he's got a donkey. Uh, either way, this is not a 20-minute trip like that journey is for you and I. It's not quick. Most scholars seem to think that this man was likely an official of King Herod. King Herod was the tetriarch over that area. Rome was in charge. Rome had named the land of Israel Palestine. They had divided that province into four sections. A tetriarch read ruling over each one of those areas. And King Herod was in charge of this area. Possibly this man serving him. I, I think that possibly this fellow's a Gentile. Doesn't, text doesn't tell us. Doesn't designate whether he's Jewish or Gentile. Um, just that he's an official of the government there. And I almost think, like as I was reading this, I kind of think, ah, I, I bet he was a Gentile. Like I'm just guessing here, but I... I kind of think, you know, well, Nicodemus, there's all these personal encounters. Nicodemus is a Jew. The Samaritan woman's a Samaritan. Makes sense. The next person that Jesus should meet would be a Gentile, an official of the government. And, and you know, I think about what Jesus instructed his disciples with in the book of Acts. After, after Pentecost, he said, you preach the gospel, you go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And maybe this pattern, the same progression is here, but the text doesn't tell us. Verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So we find out this man, this government official, he has a son. His son's ill. It's, it seems to be that whatever he's got, it's been going on for a while. And now, Death is coming knocking. 
time is getting short. And the original language expresses the idea that this man did not simply come to Jesus and ask him to come and heal his son. The original language expresses the idea that he begged him, that he was begging Jesus, come to Capernaum and heal my son. He doesn't ask. There's too much desperation. This is life and death. This is a desperate situation. He was begging Jesus, come to Capernaum and heal my son. Verse 48. This is strange. But Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Interesting response. Like, reminds me of, remember when Jesus' mother came to him at Cana at the wedding? And she's like, they've run out of wine. What did he say? Woman, what does that have to do with me? My time has not yet come. You're like, what? Where did that come from, Jesus? What's that all about? And this, to me, has the same, you know, the same feel. Here's this guy. He's begging for Jesus to heal his son. And it's like Jesus' response to me feels like it's disapproving. That it's even more than that. Like it's like severe in its disapproval. And you have a note there, I imagine in your Bible, there should be a footnote by the word you. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The text tells you that 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 word is in plural. When Jesus says you, he's speaking plurally. He's speaking to the crowd. Even though he answers the man, His answer is not just for the man. His answer is for the whole crowd. They're looking for a miracle worker. They're not interested in who Jesus is. They're interested in what Jesus can do. So he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus isn't just answering the man. He's speaking to a crowd that's hungry to watch, you know, the magic. Show us the magic, magic man. Make us go ooh and ah. And it's interesting to me that it's like when Jesus responded to his mother earlier in Cana, it's like his rejection of what's being asked and his acceptance of what is being asked kind of comes in the same answer. Just one answer like he did to woman, what does that have to do with me? My time has not yet come. But then he did it. And I think, you know, as you read this, you just get the sense like Jesus was weary of being begged for miracles by a crowd itching to see wonders. There's something wicked in the heart of mankind that solicits him. I mean, I don't want to be crude, but you think about a man soliciting a woman, like maybe a prostitute. There is something wicked about soliciting Jesus as a wonder worker, miracle man. He doesn't like it, church. He does not approve of it. Oh, just give us some miracles, Jesus. Just to give us an exhibition of your power. They weren't interested in him. They were only interested in what he would do for their entertainment. Look at church, Jesus doesn't exist for our entertainment. Jesus does not exist for our entertainment. 
when we gather together as a church, this isn't for our, us to be entertained. It's to meet with the living God. To give Jesus his rightful place in our hearts and our lives. To bow our lives before him. To humble ourselves before him. To come corporately together and to seek him. To know him. Oh, show me some magic, Jesus. Amuse me, miracle worker. That was the crowd. That was the heart of the crowd. But in the midst of that crowd, there was a man who was desperate. And Jesus was not willing to entertain, but he would meet true need. He would meet true human desperation. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. I love it, man. You know, John's just given us these glimpses as he's telling these stories. It's like, he's like punching holes in the, into the heavens so that we can get a glimpse at the, at the heart of God in these personal encounters with people. First, there was a Jew, Nicodemus, who inquired about being born again. Then there was a Samaritan woman who was looking for water that would quench her thirst. And now this man, possibly a Gentile, he's asking for the life of his son. And at Jesus' word, he believes. He believes in the words of Jesus. And John says this is the second sign that Jesus did at Cana. The second sign that Jesus is, that, that reveals that Jesus is offering life to dead people. The first sign was, was water turned to wine, which revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The second sign tells us that Jesus offers God's life to those who are dead. Verse 51 as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now, if you take time and you pay attention to this as you read what's going on here, you get this sense, this guy doesn't immediately go home. The second Jesus gives him the word, go, your son, your, your son will live. That's a 25 kilometer journey, Right? He couldn't go straight home. No flashlight. No headlights on the donkey. Uh, probably not safe to travel, I'm guessing. Probably not safe to travel through the night on that journey. Probably unsafe sections of that road. And so the guy doesn't go straight home. I would have busted home, you know. You probably think that about yourself. If it's your, if it's your child, it's like you would have gone right home. But, but to this man's credit... He hears the words of Jesus and he doesn't go home till the next day. Which means this, he believed Jesus. Jesus spoke and he's like, the scripture tells us, he, he believed. He believed 
believe the words of Jesus. He took Jesus at his word and fear lifted, anxiety lifted, because that's what happens when you hold to the promises of God. When you hold to the words of Jesus, fear, anxiety, it lifts. And at Jesus' word, this man knew that it was done. And when he did make his way out, when he be, did begin the next day to make his 25-kilometer journey to Capernaum, he met his servants who were coming from his house, and they reported to him, your son's better. He's well. And when they compared the stories and put the timeline together, they quickly realized that his son began to get well the moment that Jesus gave the word. 25 kilometers away, and yet with a word, Jesus healed the boy. Now, John wants us to catch the signs. He wants us to know that Jesus, he's telling us Jesus is the master over distance, over space. That, that, that there's no void, no gap that's too great for him. No distance between himself and his creation that he can't cover like with him laying down his life. He'll do it. He can cover any distance. And verse 53 says, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed and all his household. That's a pretty cool verse. Because John has already told us that this man believed Jesus' word, and now after knowing that, that Jesus healed his son, we, we read again about this man. It says, he himself believed and his household. I, I read this in my studies this week, and I, and I just thought this was interesting. I'll, I'll read it to you guys, and then one commentator said this. He said, many Christians have developed a single-dimension theory of believing that, in fact, contradicts growth patterns of believing. Personal sorry, that contradicts growth patterns of believing in personal experience as well as biblical perspectives. Theology must be related to actual life patterns if it's to be authentic. What, what, what the man is saying is this. That he's saying the process of believing is a process. That belief grows the belief goes through stages. This is why discipleship's important. You know, we have this tendency in our, in our West, Western culture and, and thinking to think, well, you believe or you don't believe. And that's totally true. Like, that's totally true. You're a goat or you're a sheep, man. You're in or you're out. That's how it is. There has to be a decision. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. There has to be a decision. But when we do believe... There is a depth and there is a knowledge and there is experience that comes from knowing Jesus and it deepens. If you walk with Jesus for a while, you know what I'm talking about. You believed that one time, but now you believe. And it's different. It's like you can't, you can't wrestle it out of my hand. Paul said this to the Colossian church. He, he said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, made a decision, you believed, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See, Paul uses these words when he talks about faith and belief. He talks about being rooted. 
about being built up, about being established, about walking with Jesus and, and getting to know him in such a way so that faith, belief, deepens and grows. And this man believed. He believed the word of Jesus, but then he experienced the power of Jesus. And his faith grew. And not just his. His whole household believed. Because, look at I believe this. You win a man, you win a family. And he was one, and his household was one. And verse 54 tells us, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. You see, remember I told you number two just like repeats itself all to two days, second sign, two days. And this story of the entire Cana cycle concludes with this event that, that John says is the second sign. And it's interesting. The first sign in Cana, and then there was a second sign in Cana. Two in scripture is the biblical number of union. Think about a marriage. The two shall become one. John's marrying something together here. He's bringing it back around. The two stories of Cana and everything that's in between is one story. It's one story. And remember John, John's purpose. Calvin, can you put it up on the screen again? John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. It says this again. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's just think about the circle route here for a moment. What's the one story of Cana and Galilee? If it's two stories, but it's really one story, what, what's the, the water turned to wine and the boy healed from death, from sickness? What does it tell us? It tells us that Jesus saves the best for last. That what he does, that his work is quality, that it's good. He, he's the master over quality and what he makes is good. It's the best of the best. And when Jesus told that man, go on your way, your son is healed. The man, and the man believed, and that boy was healed. When he got home, servants, or when they met on the road, the servants confirmed that the boy was well. They compared their stories. Jesus had healed him right at that hour. And it was a sign telling us that Jesus is the master over distance and time and space. What he does is good. He can. He's the master over space. It's interesting. One miracle changed things, water to wine, and the second changed people. And this final, you know, event that closes this loop of John's gospel here, this first part of ministry in Galilee, as far as John is concerned, and these two miracles, it, it's interesting that in there is like three people and they each approach Jesus in different ways. You got Nicodemus. He's like cautious. He's like a religious forensic guy. <laughs> 
a theologian, a teacher of Israel, religiously educated, and he comes inquiring. He's full of inquiry. And he learned, he learned this, that if one is to see the kingdom of heaven, he must be what? Born again. You must be born of the spirit, Nicodemus, if you're to see the kingdom of heaven. John doesn't tell us if Nicodemus was born again. Doesn't tell us if Nicodemus responded in faith to Jesus, but we're gonna see later in this gospel that Nicodemus will be present when Jesus is being buried in the tomb. He'll help prepare the body of Jesus. And I believe Nicodemus came to faith. Then you have the story of the Samaritan woman. She didn't come to Jesus like Nicodemus. There's nothing forensic or searching or any questions of inquiry from her. No, her spiritual thirst only surfaced when Jesus began to just ask her questions and began to probe her heart. And she learned that in Jesus, there's a fountain of living water that satisfies the thirsty soul. And with his words, he broke through her spiritual indifference and he brought her to a place of faith and belief. Then you get this third man, the one we see in the text this morning, different from Nicodemus, different from the Samaritan woman. This man comes to one in inquiry, you know, one in indifference, and this man in desperation comes desperately to Jesus. He's got no other option. And he learned that, that he could put his faith in Jesus' word when he had nothing else. When you got nothing else, you can put your faith in Jesus' word. He learned that the word of Jesus was sufficient and worthy of his trust. And in faith, he believed and he and his household were saved. And he had to exercise faith in Jesus when, like I said, he had nothing else. And the, the evidence tells us that each of these individuals emerged with true faith in Christ, genuine belief in Jesus. And they all approached him differently. Inquiry, indifference, desperation. And in each situation, Jesus proved that he was worthy of their trust, that he was worthy of their faith, that he was worthy of their belief. You know, I think about this father in the text this morning, the official from Canaan. His, his faith might have been reluctant at first. Like if you think about it, maybe he is a Gentile, a government official, this and that. But it was born of necessity. He had nothing else. He needed Jesus to meet him. There was desperation. And as he met Jesus, and Jesus' word came true to him, his faith transformed from maybe something that was reluctant and just simply desperate to something that was totally voluntary. He was willing to put his faith and Jesus, and faith grew, and it deepened, and it became more genuine because he experienced the power of Christ. And the point of this whole story just illustrates that there is more levels of believing and trusting and walking that you can grow in your faith, church. You can believe without seeing, namely, that's, that's what this text is about. This man believed, though he didn't see.
This text tells us that obeying the word, whether it's the word of Jesus, whether it's filling jars with water or trusting him for a miracle that's beyond your ability to see, follow his word. Obey him. You know, as we, as we read this and we zoom out for a second, considering John chapter 2 through 4, I mean, we see that just every single miracle in John's gospel is carefully selected and it's selected to, to communicate a message and to communicate a story to us. And, and the story is this, the call is this, believe even though you don't see. Believe. Trust Jesus at his word. You know, that's the faith that overcomes this world. To believe even when you don't see. Don't limit God's power. You know, it's so easy to think that distance prevents God from working. What do we learn? Distance is no obstacle to King Jesus. This man may have believed death prevented Jesus from working. Look at death does not prevent Jesus from working. Death doesn't stop Jesus. Stood in here just so, 10 days ago, George's celebration of life, and someone came up to me at the end and he said, I know where George died. I said, why did George die? So that all these people would come to church and hear about Jesus. His life did not fall to the ground. Death doesn't stop Jesus. The whole thing that pulls all of this together is faith, trusting, believing. Church, be full of belief. Trust his word. Let's bow our heads and pray. Worship.